In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. it man you're perfect ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast i hope everybody's having a beautiful day i hope that whether you're in germany whether you're in hawaii whether you're in the future or if somehow you're listening to this in the past i hope you're enjoying your time got an incredible show for you back to the podcast is the only the one and only sebastian martin colo author philosopher incredible human, my friend, all over the board. He's an amazing, amazing individual. I'm going to throw it to him right over here. He can, he could probably tell you exactly what he wants you to know about him. I'll throw it to him so he can introduce himself a little bit. Sebastian, how's it going, my friend? Uh, I'm great. Thank you. Hey, thanks for the introduction. You have, <laughs> you forgot about my friend. Hold on. Oh, which one? Let's see. Yep. That's Rody. Rody. Yeah. My son and my daughter love to ride on Rody. Yeah. <laughs> Rody's awesome. I Up wish they had Rody when I was. Yeah. He's on the show with me today. <laughs> and he will answer all of your questions uh, better than I do. He has he's more in a meditative state and he's um always balanced. I love it. <laughs> I love it, man. I um yeah, you know. We we always talk. We always get into these awesome conversations. We've been talking a lot about cannabis, and we're talking a lot about altered states <clears throat> and awareness. And I thought maybe we'd switch it up before the show got started. And you and I were talking about the potential pattern recognition power of AI and how that might, in fact, help us understand medicine better. Man, would you take it from there? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just said um, that I'm hopeful that we are now entering an age where um, AI can help us to um, generate evidence on how complex natural substances um, like cannabis or others yeah. um, hit receptor targets, various receptor targets in our brain and body and um, how, you know, and, and what, what that, uh, what, what they cause. 
And I think that there's a lot of computational power behind that um, because so far we're generating a lot of evidence or, or what we do in science is we're trying to stabilize compounds or stabilize substances, pharmaceutical substances. So we, we, we look at plants, that's what we've always done. We take, we, we, we look at anecdotal evidence or we look at what, you know, um, societies or shamans or others have said about this kind of tree or that kind of bark, you know, and take the bark and we know from ancient times that this may be good for reducing pain. And then we're looking for compounds in that bark. And, um, and then we find something like aspirin or so, which um, uh, yeah. and we find one compound that might be responsible for the reduction of pain. But then in the end, what we kind of know is that there are more substances in that bark, which also help. And um, but but it's science is more restricted as we see it right now when we generate evidence to one molecule. So I'm hopeful that we're now entering an age where we can probably better monitor and generate evidence on how complex comp compounds hit, hit receptor targets in our bodies. And so to generate evidence on plants, you know, and on, um, uh, and on you know, things that we know. And, and I think it's interesting if you look at the cannabis world, I always say that the fact that we have huge companies generating various kinds of varieties of cannabis is, is kind of evidence for the entourage effect um, that it's not only the THC in cannabis, it's not only the CBD in cannabis, but it's other cannabinoids, minor cannabinoids, and it's terpenes and, and flavonoids that um, lead to a certain effect <clears throat> and that different varieties have a different effect. So we kind of, I mean, I'd say we know that, but we're still trying to find out, is it true that this terpene, that limonene or that beta-caryophylline or that this terpene leads to whatever is antidepressive or is um, antidepressant or that this is uh, better for pain or this is better for sleep? Because in the end, we don't know if, if it's, like uh, linalool alone, or if it's linalool in combination with a minor cannabinoid plus THC, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're working on that. But as we, you know, we started the conversation talking about how rewarding it is sometimes to experiment with, uh, like ginger tea or other yeah. substances for or manuka honey or so for you know to treat yourself or to treat symptoms of. Uh, flu or something and sometimes you, you hit on something you're like wow that that's amazing but there's not much evidence on it out there in studies and so um, um, there is a huge gap we kind of know that if we have a synthetic vitamin c it's probably not as good for us as a, as an orange you know <laughs> so right. we all know that basically really know it but um, we still lack the methodology and the um, the computational power and the pattern recognition systems to to actually generate better evidence. And I think there will be, and I hope I'm hoping for a paradigm shift in the whole realm of studies, where we're 
we're going to a different or to different ways of generating evidence for that. And, and that might be, you know, yeah. if, if that happens and I'm seeing it already happening with companies coming to, you know, serve for the, that matter, I see that um, we're entering a different age and, and yeah. plans make a comeback. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the word paradigm shift because in a different age, it seems that what we do as one, like when we see things one way, regardless of what discipline it's in, it seems like we see that in all things. And I'll give you an example. Like if we look at the world today that has presidents and prime ministers and, you know, founders and CEOs, it seems like we're really focused on the one thing that steers the group. Like the same way we try to isolate THC to figure out what works on this particular receptor. But what if, what if you're right? What if it's like, it's not one thing. It's like these seven things working together to get this result. Like, you know, in some ways you can see countries changing that way or businesses changing that way. What if once we figure out, oh, it's all of us, can that be a paradigm shift? Like maybe we, we're getting this new lens in this new age to see that it's, it's not one, it's all. Is that can that be a paradigm shift, or can you see that same sort of thing, or is that just crazy talk? No, no, no. That um, I mean, you have um, effects like the butterfly effect, yeah. so where you see that a small and um, especially in a world that is so hyper connected as yeah. we are now with yeah. the internet and with all the media, you see little ripples of you know. Um, energetic wave, so to say, happening in in a place uh, in Egypt or in, right. in, uh, in that part of the world. And suddenly you have the, in the whole, in the whole um, region, you have a revolution starting up, uh, a democratic revolution or something. And so things are going fast and they're not, they're not always leader driven. They're sometimes driven from little communities right. or people connecting and, and so I think this is a fascinating world to live in because we are, because of that hyper connection and because of the speed of the traveling signals, right? Uh, things can change mm. rapidly and, and uh, it's almost unpredictable. I mean, it's uh, anything can happen. So, uh, but in a way that's kind of frightening because there are a lot of dangers out there now and, and, um, with the climate change and nuclear weapons and the wars yeah. happening, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But then also we have a lot of tools and we have a lot of intelligence out there and, and um, capabilities of people, of amazing people. And we have the fact that even, you know, somebody who comes up, even, even somebody who's not a big CEO, not right. a billionaire, not a president, uh, not a Nobel Prize winner, can like start a revolution in Africa because he uses the internet to build like a wind, little windmill for his village yeah. um, to generate electricity. And then, you know, thousands of communities do it and they change, you know, a, a lot. So, so I think that gives me hope. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's a very empowering, um, empowering perspective on what's happening in the world because you know that you can make a difference um especially if you're connected to people especially if you start um interacting with others and uh we're not isolated yeah. so 
Yeah. It 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 blows my mind to think about how how connected we are and how ripe for good ideas are out there. It seems like maybe not everyone, but it seems to me like the 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 it's opening up for individuals to have decisions that can make big changes in the world. You know, like you said, if somebody comes up with this idea, they put on a house, now they have a windmill. Like that could theoretically disrupt the general dynamics on some level. Maybe not general dynamics, but like you you understand what I'm saying. Like an yeah, individual yeah. can come up and not get snuffed or pushed out of the way. And they, they have the, the real resources in front of them to, to begin building their idea, unlike never before. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I've um, I looked into chaos theory a long time ago, and you know that's yeah. By the name of it, we think that it's a theory. It, well, it's it's a theory about um, um, dynamics that we see as chaotic and not predictable, but to a certain extent, there there is a very complicated mathematical way to describe those systems and to, to look into things like the butterfly effect and other mm -hmm. effects uh, or to look into what's called strange tractors and where the systems tend to you know move to and um <clears throat> and i think um uh we live in a world where we have to expect a lot of surprises and we should always think of ourselves as being able to have a big effect on them yeah and it, which is you know for some it, it's paradoxical because also you very often we feel so overwhelmed by everything that's hitting our senses because it comes through you know everywhere with the media and with with yeah. um uh, and we we feel disconnected because uh we're not seeing the world anymore or we're not meeting people anymore with corona etc so we we're always um, staring at screens and we're talking to phones, et cetera, but, but we are hyper-connected and we can meet and, uh, and we can make a difference. So, so um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating time, rapidly changing. And, um, and I think we, in Germany, I mean, we, uh, same in, in, in the States, people went on the street now, like by the millions, yeah. I think. Yep. Um, in the last weeks, because they found out that the right-wing party AFD collaborated with neo-Nazis, basically, and other like really right-wing forces to think about how to push out people here, how to um, deport um, people by the millions from Germany. Whoa! In secret meetings. So now, finally, you know, they're waking up and. Uh, People are like, enough is enough because that party, the AFD, is um, under observation by the um, by the government. In some parts, it's already um, classified as radical and as right wing radical. Um, and um, so now um, people are standing up and say, "This we can't take this anymore." This party already has like twenty percent of the population on their side. So. Um, um, and now you can see how, because of those connections, because of social media, also people, you know, are are becoming more aware of it, and they're, and they're they're standing up for their rights. So that's a good thing. 
there are a lot of other things that are not good, but but we should uh, be hopeful. And we should also always, if you feel like um, you have no power or you feel like um, overwhelmed, you know, get active. I mean, it's um, it's in your hands. Little, you know, an individual can make a huge difference now. Yeah, it's true. As a philosopher, do you, do you look back on the past and maybe you have some particular philosophers that, that you really admired or you still admire today, do you see the potential for chaos or war on the front as, as being elevated these days? Or is it, I mean, is that on your mind at all being over there and seeing the far right come out like that, or just, just seeing the way the world is right now as a philosopher, do you think that we're closer to war than we've ever been before? Or do you think that's just how every generation is? Um, I think we're getting very close. And uh, of course, if you think about uh, from a German perspective, if you think Mm. back to the Second World War and to the First World War, um, now the situation is, of course, uh, much worse because we have um, all over the world, we have uh, weapons of mass destruction. And if you're thinking about what happens if somebody drops a, a nuclear bomb somewhere, how will the population react? How will the world react? Will, will it radicalize everything? Mm. Are we prepared for that? Uh, that's, of course, a frightening vision. And um, But um, if you think about uh, like the First or the Second World War and how, especially in Germany, the younger generation, they were running like they were frantic they were like happy to run over uh, france and to kill people because they they thought it's the right thing they had basically only one source of information so propaganda mm. had a strong hold on them and um so but now we're in a situation where we have multiple sources and, mm. and we are at a completely different point of education people have yeah. been brought up uh, here and in most other countries, they have not brought, been brought up in an, in such an authoritarian way. And, you know, uh, so um, the educational system is different. So we have different resources. So it's really, it's, it's sad to see. And, and I think that's something that nobody predicted 20 years ago that um, in countries like China or Russia, they're closing um, so because we thought, yeah, we have that connectivity now. People can look all over the world yeah. and see what's happening and they get their information, but they're close, closing their systems to their propaganda. So that's a problem, of course, in and, and also in the Western countries. I mean, you, you see yeah. the media landscape being dominated by, um, <clears throat> by only a, 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 some big... Um, conglomerates of uh, companies or uh, huge uh, leaders of, uh, who bought the media and then uh, kind of dominate the opinion, make uh, the opinion pieces, etc. So um, that's that's a problem, but still uh, we are at a different point all over the world. So we have the resources and that gives me the hope that we uh, can get out of this situation. That's one of the points, but... Um, but we gotta be. We have to be aware that it's that we're close to um, 
to uh, we're having big problems yeah and, uh, we need to act what what role do you think it, and it seems to me that when you look at and and i don't know for sure but it seems to me a precursor to war is usually national finance versus international finance right that seems like a problem, right? And that, that seems like what's happening right now. It's like people are jockeying for control of, of the centralized power of money. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, of course, you see that in the, in the Second World War, especially yeah. with the whole crash in, in, in the end 20s and then the, you know, the mass... Um, massive like lots of people having no jobs etc yeah. and then the radicalization of the whole society mm -hmm. and here now you see of course that <clears throat> the middle class is going down like in the states i mean we're yeah, you know, same. The, the accumulation of of capital and in just one percent of the population um that is that is something we should think about more and, and the problem i think is that that a lot of people um, get distracted and they they don't understand those dynamics. Yeah. And that politics, no matter what politician from the so-called left or so-called right, they're all serving the system because yes. they're kind of in a way get bribed. And then once they're yep. in the place of power, they make sure that rich people get away with paying no taxes, et cetera, because otherwise they couldn't even get up in the system, no, no matter where they come from. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it's the foreigners come and then, you know, you, then people tell you it's the foreigners coming up. It's because we're taking refugees or it's because of the Mexicans coming over the border. And I, I always tell people, <clears throat> of course there are problems with people coming from different um, countries but economic, I don't think that economically that's the big problem, A, um, because a lot of these people bring abilities and they, they help the country also. Um, I've been in a lot of projects helping refugees also and um, or as a photographer. And I always compare the situation to if you, if you break it down in Germany, I'm, I'm not sure if we talked about that before. If we break it down in Germany and say, okay, we have like, I think, 82 million people here. So let's break it down to a village of small village of 82 people. And now <clears throat> if we talk about 1 million refugees, that's one person in that village. So we just shrink it proportionally. So now let's say <clears throat> we have a village of 82 people. Some of them are super rich, like three. Uh, some of them are rich. Some of them are a really good middle class and in Germany. Some of them are poor. We have poor people uh, also. And um, I, I couldn't give you exactly now the statistics on, you know, how many people you have in there, but you get the idea. Now you have another village over there and that's burning down for some reasons of war, whatever, natural catastrophe. And then one person, which would be 1 million refugees in the bigger picture, one person comes over to that village. And then there are some people in that village, uh, some media, some people who tell you all our problems all our fucking problems are because of that guy who also has green skin and not blue skin yeah. like, like we do. Right. Right. <laughs> and, it's ridiculous. Uh, so we have to feed that guy now. <laughs> All our problems come from that guy. Really? Really? 
So, um, so yeah, uh, your question, of course, is right. We have to think about uh, another paradigm shift in how, because I, I think it, it, it did sink in. Yeah. And um, especially in the States, I remember, I, it did thinking that we feel that it's natural, that this system is as it should be, that there are billionaires and they shouldn't pay tax and it's all okay. And because if we make them pay tax and they go to a different country and then we don't have, uh, you know, the, uh, the factories here anymore and we cannot, you know, survive. In the, no, we need international rules for, you know, for, uh, for the system to be just and uh, for a better dis distribution of wealth. So there, we need completely different rules in place. I always remember uh, when I studied in North Carolina, <clears throat> I, I walked down the street and I saw some people who lived on the street and a guy who was literally sleeping on cardboard. Um, um, uh, besides the road, got up, there was a white Mercedes limousine, I think, or white, bigger, whatever, Mercedes driving by. And he got up and he was like, when I'm rich, I'm going to drive that car. Nice. So it's not like, hey, maybe we should think about a better distribution. Why, you know, why do some people have so uh, much money and don't, you know, have to pay taxes? But it's like, I'm going to be in that place, you know, I'm going to be the one and other can be poor. <laughs> so you know, it's like, uh, so there's something deeply wrong and we need to change our mindset about that. Yeah, I'm hopeful that it, it happens. It, it, it does seem like, you know, when you pan back and you try to look at it and try to fix it, like the, no one person can fix a problem this big, but you can fix yourself. Like you can change your mindset. And maybe that's the answer. Like saying to yourself, like, look, I've got some things I need to work on. And the better I can work on my things, the better society is going to be. It's, but it's so much easier to be like, we got to go get these people. We got to get those people. Instead of looking at you on the inside and understanding that you relate to the world in a way that is problematic it's much easier to point the finger and be like, it's the green guy or it's the rich guy or it's the poor guy, you know, or it's the gay guy or the straight guy, you know, it's, right. and it seems like that division. And now we're back to propaganda on some level. Cause it, it does seem like people in positions of authority like to fan that flame a lot. Like, Hey, don't look here. Look over there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, um, that's a problem. And, and it's interesting. We just had, um, a conversation here about somebody who is having real problems like a friend of mine not, uh, with alcohol and mm -hmm. not being able yeah. to change the pattern of alcohol abuse and um, so uh, we talked a lot about that and um, and I looked into I read a story of a journalist who also talks and she talked about how she, you know that she went down that road and drank more and more and how yeah. she went to party and lost control, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting to see that it's, especially with alcohol, you, you see how hard it is for many of those, of many for many people and of opiates and opioids, yep. opioids, of course, also to get off those substances. But what I find interesting is that 
if you talk to some people, they come to a point where they just say enough is enough. No more of that. Boom. And they get away from it and they change their lives. And it's, and if you ask them, what, what was it, you know, was it a friend? Was it a therapy? Was it, uh, in that one, um, yeah, the, uh, the journalist that I just talked about, she said she can't really tell. She can't really tell what was the factor, uh, but she just said that she, she just had the feeling that that was just one time enough, one time too much, and now she's over it. Now she's, and this is something that I, I feel like, like with nutrition, when you, yeah. when you go down the wrong road and you, you, um, you eat more to satisfy whatever needs you have, but you can't satisfy them. You want to have pleasure out of eating and more eating. And, and then you, you, um, you feel miserable in your body and to compensate for that, you eat more because that gives you pleasure, et cetera, et cetera. And you yeah. go down that vicious cycle. Um, <clears throat> um, then I think at some point you feel, you might feel so miserable and you might have a vision or an idea of something else that you just flip at some point. It, not, it doesn't necessarily happen, but it can happen. And, um, and I'm hoping that in our society, we come to that point because it's, um, it's going worse and worse. I mean, in Germany, for instance, we see the rent going for, for apartments. I mean, the, the prices are the rent people cannot afford apartments yeah. anymore here. It's insane how the prices went up in the last years. Um, so, um, and at some point, you know, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm working now most of my time to just fucking, sorry, to just pay my rent. And, um, and so the whole um, system comes to a point where, I mean, they're trying to put the brakes on it, but it's, it's not really working. And the whole dynamics of the, uh, the capital working its way upward is is basically still in place. And uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to see how as a society we will react to that because in the next years there will have to be a, a big reaction, so that's a systemic yeah. reaction and not one of, oh, these people, it must yeah. be them or it must be them or I must right. have a little bit more of that, that, that you know, won't do it. Right. That illusion would be shattered because it's not them and it'll be way too, you cannot paint those people in that direction anymore. It's, and I think that on some level, it's interesting that we talk about the drugs that people have turned to in the past that allowed them to sleep in the hollows of the doorway of despair, right? I think that on some level, if we can figure out like your book Elevated talks about, to understand how to use cannabis as a tool for mind enhancement or psychedelics. It seems that these particular methodologies, you know, I teachers or exogenous neurotransmitters, whatever you want to call them, it seems to me like they're calling to people in a way that is helping people find their way out of crisis. It's almost like a light at the end of the tunnel for people. And I, I don't, I, I wasn't around back at the last war or, even in Vietnam, but it seems maybe in Vietnam, like, you, you know, you started to see some of these particular, be it psychedelics or marijuana or, or cannabis, 
like it started changing the way people saw stuff, you know, and maybe, maybe that's what we're on the cusp of again. If, if, if history moves in a helical pattern, maybe we're on that cusp again, but now we have these things in front of us. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, um, well, I, I immediately think of, um, two times in history okay. where you could see, um, a cultural, revolution happening which is and i wrote about it in my book uh, what hashish did to walter benjamin nice. where is it here yeah um, we'll see it show it if you got it um so it's it's uh, also a, a collection of essays <clears throat> nice and um i'm uh, showing an image of walter benjamin as he um <laughs> sits sit on the balcony and smokes the joint, which he didn't do, he probably just ingested it. But um, um, in, in this book, I not only explore how cannabis can change individual uh, thinking and cognition and states like pattern recognition and abilities like um, uh, focusing or yep. or so personal transformation or empathic understanding, but also I'm, I'm, I have a few essays in there that are on how how the use of cannabis for enhancements for those enhancements might have changed society. And one is about the early evolution of jazz, where I believe and I argue that <clears throat> we all know that Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong was very very illiterate about it. I mean, he, he wrote really about his use of cannabis. He said his um, autobiography could have been called uh, Gage, which was the code word for marijuana because he was a daily smoker. And um, I, I highly recommend reading Milton, Milton Mez Mesro's book, Really the Blues, <clears throat> um, nice. which is... Uh, he was, uh, I think at some point, his manager and he, a, a colleague who played also a great saxophone and, and other instruments, and um, uh, who wrote about the whole jazz scene and about cannabis use. Um, it's an amazing book. Um, and I believe that um, if you look at the transition from blues music to jazz jazz musicians really moving from the south to places in in new york or the other big cities really had to work under tough conditions and uh, I, I read stories about you know how they how how they left their apartment and then to leave their wives alone because they had to hustle and they had to you know prostitute themselves to to uh, help them to survive, etc. So that was a tough time. And then comes cannabis and they are, the music turns from blues into swing music and gives them mm. energy and helps them to overcome their traumas, wow. helps them. And that's in really the blues, Mez Mesro, how they're, how they're connecting on stage empathically, how, how also they're connecting to the crowd, how yeah. white, uh, and how how the black jazz musicians and and white people in New Orleans connect in clubs even during a time of the Jim Crow laws, 
which which was the problem then because you know people like Harry Anslinger said we need to you know we we need to crack down on that that can't happen and um <clears throat> how cannabis helped them to how uh, cannabis got people like uh, Louis Armstrong in the flow uh, and helped him to scat and to improvise on skate on stage and go fast like you see it with in the whole hip hop community still yeah and um, so, and that led to a huge change in society, you know, suddenly there is a vibrant music, which is still in terms of, think of cultural heritage, which is still one of the most important things, I think, coming out of, out of the States also, uh, the whole e evolution of jazz and the early evolution of jazz going to, you know, with, with the swing and the vibes and the dancing, it's, it's like an explosion of joy creativity, yeah. empathy, and and brilliance. And um, that's amazing to see that we, we tend to forget that <clears throat> because people don't know the details so much about that, but there are so many jazz musicians who smoke cannabis and we have uh, people like Milton Mes Mesro, who was famous for his Mes rolls, which were the like really high standard cannabis um, joints. Uh, he was also a dealer. In, uh, in Harlem <clears throat> and um, so um, so that was for instance a very, that's a very inter interesting story to look at and then of course it's an interesting story to look at how cannabis and LSD and other substances led to what happened in the 60s I mean that that's a big discussion yeah. still but I, I think it's it's uh, kind of obvious that some of those things happened there and I wrote an I'm, I'm not sure if we talked about that. Did we talk about the LSD conference with uh, Albert Hoffman that I went to? Yeah, where the guys got up and the people yeah, were dancing. Absolutely. Everyone kind of looked at them like they were freaks. Well, and then that's all of a sudden... where I felt all that, you know, where yeah. everybody's sitting there and then, and then suddenly there there is this music meditative and, and it's kind of opening people up. And suddenly the strong, like the invisible... Um, inhibitions of people and the values they have suddenly everything is kind of shaken up and breaking up and people start moving and and doing different things and suddenly the whole crowd is different yeah this is something that gives me hope this can happen it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to happen but it, it's something that can happen in a society that's so well connected yeah i, I think there's a lot of evidence for it you know i was thinking today about the, this whole psychedelic renaissance that we're in. And I, I looked back and started thinking about some of the, the bands and, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid tests and all of these people that started finding their way into the first wave that, that came up in the sixties. And I thought to myself, I wonder what was the average age of the boomer when that popped off? Because we, you know, we have this other class coming up, like the Zoomers that are another big class. And isn't it interesting that psychedelics are finding their way in? I wonder if there's a correlation between the average age of the boomers when the first psychedelic movement exploded and where the next generation, this next big generation is right now. Because it yeah. seems like we're, you know, every hundred years, you got 19, 20, 20, 20. You know, you have like these big, and even that book, The Fourth Turning, talks about these generational patterns that happen. It's, interesting to think about what would your take on like that that generational rhyming especially with psychedelics involved yeah i, I i'm sure there um 
that is a big factor in how the dynamics mm. plays out. And uh, of course, but there, of course, there are many other yeah. factors uh, involved on where the society is and, you know, what, because if you look, for instance, at the um, cannabis prohibition, marijuana prohibition, yeah, we see the, the cannabis prohibition, um, especially in the States, um, uh, I, I remember an interesting um, historical uh, interesting take on it by by a historian. Yeah, not sure if I remember the name now, but he, he said that Anslinger basically had a very small agency. He had only like three hundred agents or so, and uh, in the thirties, and and he looked over, he drove down um, a highway and he looked over fields and fields of cannabis, you know, that were still grown then, and he was like, how how am I going to control that? And so basically, the um, he came up with the conclusion that he has to start a big um, campaign and, and um, a disinformation campaign, you know, and he spread he spread lies and he spread disinformation through the media, through the mass media, through newspapers, etc. And uh, that cannabis can will turn you into a, a killer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all of these myths about cannabis are still um are still active and they're they still have their uh effects today so <clears throat> so i think if you if you look at how, what you were talking about those generational observations and the age observations they i'm i'm pretty sure you're totally right about that that's a big factor and we see yeah. things coming back and we, we see that being a factor in the dynamics but and for instance, it's also a factor in the dynamics of how societies have been taught about things and how disinformation has been spread and how these um, how these uh, little bits and pieces of disinformation are still active and, you know, yeah, keeping yeah. people from doing things. And, and uh, so um, so I think it's 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 a very complex equation to look at um, when you want to really look into the dynamics of all that. But um, we should never forget two things. First of all, is um, what I learned through Ronald K. Siegel is a um, all kinds of animals are using psychoactive substances. Mm -hmm. uh, ants do it. Elephants do it. Um, birds do it, uh, goats do it, and um, and they they do it for certain purposes. Um, so in evolution, we're not we're not special as humans. So we we have a connection. We are using um, psychedelics and other substances for certain reasons, and um, that's that's really one important thing. And uh, the other one is. <clears throat> that um, let me let me think I'm not sure if I, if I lost the thread yeah here. take your time um, yeah so connected with that let's put it this way um, psychoactive substances bring various enhancements even those even even alcohol we, I just talked about yeah. that with somebody. Um, if 
for instance, alcohol, for some people, alcohol helps them. If they drink alcohol, it helps them to focus, to get in the flow, to lose their inhibitions. Yeah. And, and so these are all things that, that help, um, that are kind of universal. Uh, I mean, it's not individually the same, but some people might be, might say, I remember my philosophy professor said that he works best when he has had half a bottle of scotch. Mm. World famous professor. Um, and, um, and he said he's really focused. He's in the flow. He can think, he can write. He's, he's at his best then. And um, which is not my recommendation for alcohol, but it was just, uh, just to say, if you want to understand why people use it or even not use yeah. it or even die on it, they might do it because it helps them uh, think Big Bang Theory. What's that guy's name? Uh, who's um, Raj? Who's using it for um, for his anxiety, social anxiety, etc. And um, <clears throat> so, so this is uh, this is also a factor that's always there that people are looking like the evolutionary perspective and on the individual um, perspective. If you look at how people are using those substances, they help them. Uh, for various things and uh, you then have to look at the society and what the society society imposes on people we now have a lot of stress I mean people are stressed by the informational environment by yeah. the demands of modern life by the velocity of everything happening the changes by not being able to uh, support a family by losing a job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the um, things that they're looking for is something to help them deal with the stress uh, to cope. So, um, uh, so then the society turns to, or a lot of people turn to cannabis because cannabis can help amazingly with stress. Um, and then others come and tell them, you have a problem with cannabis well maybe not maybe they have a problem with the stress yeah uh, and maybe yes maybe the cannabis then can be a, um uh a, maybe they they get into an escapist uh, use which can also be a problem and reinforce the problems they already have but the original problem is not cannabis not like very right. often that's uh a point about addiction or substance abuse behavior um, or disorder is like the the standard viewer, so to say. M many people think about it as there's there's a, a normal person with no problems, and then there's a substance like a, a very addictive, bad, evil substance coming from the devil, and then the person is going down. Right. And uh, of course, we know that's uh, bullshit. Yeah. So it's... yeah. So that that these are to to sum that up. I mean, we have to think about the evolutionary perspective. Um, all animals have always used um, various psychoactive substances for various reasons. That is part of our DNA, so to say. And um, uh, these substances can help us with various cognitive abilities. But of course, we need to understand that we need to intelligently work with that. Because even if alcohol, for instance, helps me to focus as a writer, for instance, uh, I have to be aware that it it destroys my health uh, to a certain extent. And then I have to make a choice, you know, uh, you know, that's the advantage with cannabis. It's not, it's not toxic in that sense. And um, 
So, so we need to have intelligent regulations uh, and we need to have intelligent individual approaches to it, which is why I wrote The Art of the High, which is to help people to, um, to use a high for those mental enhancements uh, and to um, get away from abuse and to, to really um, control the risks better. Yeah. There are risks. Yeah, without a doubt. I, it's interesting to think I've, when you say that there's risks and we talk about these different substances or we talk about this substance coming from the devil, you know, I, the word relationships comes to mind. And I think about, I used to smoke a lot and then I used to dip sometimes. And, you know, it's really tough to quit those things because they're, they're pretty addictive. But what I did is I, I just changed my relationship to it. I started growing like this Hopi tobacco and I would eat, I would chew some of the leaves. And in doing so, I fundamentally changed my relationship with tobacco. You know, it, it used to be my relationship with tobacco was sort of this, this synthesized, semi, semi-organic substance because it had so much stuff in it. But when I started just growing the plant and then chewing the leaves, like on some level, it helped me. And, and, and with, you know having leverage on myself, like, look, I, I got a family and I don't want to smell like smoke. You know, like you, you have the leverage on yourself, but you also change your relationship with the substance. And in doing so, you change the way you act together when you're with that substance or how you consume that substance. But it's, it's changing your relationships with everything. It's an interesting process. Yeah. So what, what would you say, what does that tobacco use do for you? And it's interesting because I think that my relationship with it changed in the beginning. It was like a social function. Like I would have a cigarette when I would drink some beers and it felt pretty good and it was more of a stimulant. But then the further down the road I got, it was more of like, um, you know, like, a, like a, a, more of like a, a calming, you know, like a sedative, you know, I don't know if you can say a, it's more of like a satisfying sedative. Not that I was going to fall asleep, but it was more like a focusing, mellowing out than it was more of like a, woo, I'm partying and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe there's something that happens along the lines inside your body that changes as well. What about you? What do you think? Well, I'm asking because I think I, I, I'd like to make a general point about it. I think it's um, important to become aware, to reflectively think about your use of substances, yeah. but not only your use of substances, but also of media, because we're mm -hmm. addictions run all over yes. the place. We usually think of addictions in, in terms of substances, but of course we're addicted to whatever, shopping, yeah. to internet, to um, social media, uh, et cetera. And uh, think about people who, uh, you know, reports of people um, who, visit friends and then they're like oh i have to go to the toilet but they don't really have to go to the toilet but they need to check their facebook or something <laughs> obsessively so <clears throat> and uh and i think it's really um <clears throat> important um to be aware of it what mm -hmm. you are using whatever alcohol right. or uh, cannabis or lsd yeah. or television or whatever for yep and um and then to, to look into the um, risk-benefit analysis or the whole 
does that how much does it help me and what does it take away from me so is it really good for me to watch i, I i'm working until 11 in the evening or pm and then i need to come down uh, and I'm, I'm watching news on television or something and i go to bed with all the negativity of yeah. negativity off whatever yeah. but i'm i'm you know i need to stop my like the whole the internal you know the whole thinking and obsessing yes. about problems so i'm i think in castaneda's word i'm stopping the world i'm trying to stop the world by watching the most negative things about the world and um so so we need once we become aware of those things um it really helps. I mean, it might help to watch television to stop me from thinking of obsess yes. obsessively about my problems because it may not be a problem that there's a flood in India or something. But then I'm, I, I should think about, is that really how you want to stop? Uh, or maybe you want to do a meditation. Maybe that's a better yeah. way to, yeah. to, to come down. And, um, and I think it's the same with substances. And if you think about, if you come to the conclusion well, this kind of tobacco use is, I'm doing it for whatever, relaxation, for uh, focus, for uh, the taste experience, you know, then you can also make a better choice yeah. about whether you want to keep that. You're like, well, the taste experience is so important to me that I, uh, you know, I can deal with everything else with a negative, whatever impact of nicotine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I make a conscious choice about it, or you say, or maybe you come to the conclusion, well, well, if it's, for instance, if it's just a taste experience and the sedation that I want out of it, or the mm -hmm. little moment, well, there are other ways, maybe, you know, maybe I can replace that with something that's healthier to me. Yeah. And um, I think this is, this is the kind of mindfulness that we should have that we should um, arrive yeah. at. But the first step is um, an introspective process, is like to be able, and I, I, I feel that a lot of people, and this is also what I've tried to do with my um, The Art of the Highest, to give them a vocabulary to, uh, to talk about their mental states. What is it? And yeah. to, to get an overview of the possible enhancements, but also risks. Just one example, if you smoke or if you inhale or consume cannabis, you have an enhancement of episodic memory retrieval. So mm -hmm. sometimes you, you feel it's what's happening with LSD as well. Sometimes you, or, or with other substances that you, you feel like you relive moments that you had mm -hmm. like 20 years ago as a child and like um you can see everything you can feel everything that happened and and that's an incredible value to your life yeah. now again once you understand that and once you are able to conceptualize that you can put it on your list yeah and say see this is something that cannabis gives me and um or, or whatever substance gives me. And then on the other side of the list, you have, well, but that substance may lead to this and that, or it may lead to some damages or some risk, or I do it too often, or I get a problem in my relationship with it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
and then you can come to a better um, evaluation of your use and um, whether you should maybe replace it. And again, <clears throat> I think I said that before, but I think I, what is central to my thinking is also the notion of coping because we are using a lot of yeah. um, psychoactive substances as coping strategies. We want to cope with stress, for instance. We want to cope with post-traumatic um, stress. We want to cope with our depression. We want to cope with our anxiety. And um, I remember from a conference on... Um, mobbing and suicide i think it was <clears throat> that somebody said like a teenager who comes to a therapist and says here i'm uh, i'm using a knife to hurt myself when i'm in certain uh, states of despair as a therapist you're doing the exact wrong thing if you say hey you freak you know stop that <laughs> what you should basically <laughs> say <laughs> like what <laughs> What are you doing? Go out here. <laughs> you know, I don't want to see that. So <clears throat> what you should do is to tell that kid or that um, adolescent, like, hey, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. You have found a way yep. to survive because probably because of mobbing or post-traumatic uh, post stress, you are falling into states or mental you're you're falling into moods where you can't feel your body where you feel desperate and you probably also feel suicidal and you want to jump from the balcony you haven't done that because you have found a coping strategy a coping strategy which is cutting your skin which makes you feel alive we know that if you cut your skin or if you hurt yourself endorphins are released so you you come to your senses yeah probably a little bit happy or something in a weird sense that we wouldn't you know but but it's it's happening and maybe it takes you through the suicidal stage and helped you to survive so congratulations yeah really yeah but maybe we need to think about slowly replacing that coping mechanism with something that helps you to not hurt yourself, but to still cope with whatever problems you have. And um, I think when we talk about cannabis, for instance, maybe, maybe cannabis is perfect for you. Maybe, maybe cannabis is not only a coping mechanism, but also something uh, that's how I feel about myself. Yeah. Yeah. Where I feel, I don't, you know, I don't have a problematic um, relationship with it. I've never felt like I'm doing too much. I never felt I have a problem in my relationship because of it. I never felt like I'm using tobacco and hurt my lungs. And I, I get those enhancements and I know how to use it. So I, I don't feel like I need to replace that. You know, it just gives me something and the risks are really low. And, you know, the only problem is the society as it looks on it. But so mm -hmm. sometimes you might find that you're, what you're doing is just fine. Maybe, but also maybe if you feel like you've been using cannabis to cope with your, um, with the death of a, of a near one. Yeah. And you, you've been smoking for a whole year, day in and day out. 
a lot and that also kind of made you sleepy and you're not really functioning at work for some reason or et cetera, et cetera. It helped still a therapist might say, or a friend might say to you, congratulations, you know, you found a way to cope yeah. with your sadness, but maybe you should think about a different way now to enter into a, either enter into a more healthy relationship with cannabis but then we first need to satisfy whatever cannabis helped you to do, which is probably maybe, for instance, in that case, maybe you get a therapy um, and uh, you think you, you have somebody to talk to you and get through you, with your trauma, with your sadness. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. And maybe, right. cannabis, maybe cannabis will stay part of it. Maybe maybe cannabis is the right thing for you to go through it. Maybe that that is it. Maybe you find something better. Maybe you find meditation, yeah. a meditation practice to help you with that. And then once you've done that, <clears throat> maybe you get back to cannabis and you say, hey, now I'm open for, for a different relationship to cannabis. And now I don't need it anymore to cope with my sadness. But now I'm using it to get high, have a great evening with my friends, enjoy a meal have a great taste experience, complex taste experience in, uh, you know, be creative in the kitchen, listen to music, hear mm -hmm. new nuances in the music, generate ideas for my novel that I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I'm doing that once a week and I'm fine. So, <clears throat> so I think, um, I believe that a lot of people are already using cannabis, alcohol, MDMA for many more reasons they could probably tell and that society would admit them, right. you know, they're using it for empathic understanding, for connecting yep. with other people, for connecting with their bodies, for de-stressing, for, for addressing their fears, for, you know, uh, disinhibition, for et cetera, et cetera. There's such a long list, but we need to become as a society and as individuals more aware of what does this kind of substance give to me and um, am I fine with that? Is that okay? Is that a healthy relationship? And um, should I stay with it as it is or maybe I can whatever, maybe I need a, something different for my stress, for my pain, for my whatever. And then I, I enter into a different relationship with the plant. So, so that's very also non-judgmental because a lot of people, I think, have come up with great coping strategies. Of course, society mostly tells them, you're a freak. You're a <laughs> and you have the problems because you, you don't have problems because your alcoholic dad told you you're an asshole and he, uh, you know, he put you in the cellar for days, etc. That's not your problem. Your problem is that you're taking cannabis, my friend. You know? <laughs> so, so, um, so um, that's my perspective on on how people use psychoactive substances and how they self-medicate and how they not only self-medicate but how they use it also for inspiration and other things, yeah. and to um, to lead a better life. I mean, they're to yeah. connect with other people, to be in a group of friends, to be better people, to be more outgoing, to be in the flow, etc. But then 
I always tell them, think about yourself, develop the tools to, ref to reflect on yourselves. Your friends will help you mm -hmm. take their feedback. Um, they're not the only ones, but it's all, always good to have people around you to tell, to tell you, Hey, you're, you, you, I know you're really funny when you're, when you're drinking, but I have a feeling it's getting out of hand. And, um, and so take that advice if necessary, take the advice of selected, um, therapists, problem is with uh, therapists that some of them have their prejudices and, you know, they will put more shame on you that you, you'd need. Um, but there are good people out there. And then, you know, um, it's, it's our responsibility as individuals and as a society to come to a healthier relationship with uh, psychoactive substances because they are amazing tools and they can be used for amazing goals. Yeah, it's, it's well said. It, you know, there's also a, an interesting thing that happens when you begin seeing the world in a different way. Like maybe you start a relationship with cannabis or psychedelics and you start seeing or you become more aware of what's happening. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe instead of quitting cannabis, you quit your job. Right. That, that can make yeah. people, yeah, like, that can make people around you a little nervous and then yeah. they want to recondition you. Hey, what do you do? Well, look what you just did. Do you look, is this fair for your family? Look what you just did. You yeah. knucklehead. This is all wrong. What they're really saying is like, you're making me pretty nervous over here thinking yeah. I'm doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and that can be hard if you're the individual who, who, who like had this glimpse of clarity, like, Oh my God, this is, I can't do this anymore. You know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you stop using cannabis. You're like, okay, maybe I should, maybe I just was using too much cannabis, but really yeah. what you saw was a better future for yourself. And society, right. sometimes it doesn't, psychedelics and cannabis are a substance that make people around you flip out when you take it. <laughs> you know, I, I just had an interesting conversation yesterday. I went to a, a family um, reunion, mm -hmm. uh, 90th birthday of my aunt. Oh, congratulations. And, um, and I talked to... Um, uh, somebody in my family is a psychiatrist. I met her for the first time and she's, she, she told me, Oh yeah, I heard about your book. I'm kind of like, I don't know, because in, in Germany, so especially the psychiatrist, I know that from working in the medical realm, the psychiatrist associations are very critical about, um, cannabis and addiction, mm. cannabis and psychosis, etc. They are mm. like their friend. They're, they're really, um, they drink the Kool-Aid. Um, very they're rejecting the whole issue they're like no you can't even appear on our uh whatever you know we That's tried so to get crazy. in a discussion they were like we don't no, no we don't even want to hear about it you know it's like okay all right so it's like ah. <laughs> yeah exactly okay, what it is that doesn't seem like very adult. Like, they should disqualify anyway. them <laughs> yeah. i don't i don't want to <laughs> I heard it's dangerous and I don't want to know about it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. And then she, <clears throat> uh, she asked one. me about, you know, what I'm doing. We met for the first time. She's, mm -hmm. and she's very nice. So it's, it's not like, but then, uh, we ended up in the dynamics ended up a little bit like what you expect from a psychiatrist. She's asking and she's, she's not giving you the, she's not telling you, Hey, uh, 
you're a neurotic, whatever bastard. <laughs> That's not a psychiatrist, but she's asking questions that go in a certain direction. Right. You know, telling you. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> so she she was directing me to, and I could see that my point of view kind of challenges, of course, her yes. fears, worldview about mm-hmm. cannabis, etc. And she, then she got a little defensive and steering into the direction of, don't you think you have an unhealthy, well, you're still, okay, you had so much problems working as an author and, you know, your books was tough to write and you didn't get funding and then you, and then you worked in the medical industry and yeah, you helped those people, but then you had problems with that company and then you did this and you had problems with that and society does look down on you and you're still on the subject don't you think you have an unhealthy obsessive relationship with the substance with cannabis? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Don't you see that something is wrong with you? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, um, the thing is, well, or actually I didn't come to because we were always interrupted by kids. So it, it didn't, uh, it kind of ended well. I was making fun of her, like, and I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying a little bit, and if I if this doesn't work out, then I'm come coming back to you, and I, you're gonna heal me from my obsession with cannabis, <laughs> and then I'm gonna be fine." And we laughed, so it it was a cool conversation. But but I um I think that's an interesting um, uh, encounter because I, yes. I think that so many of us who are working in the psychedelic space have those encounters. Yeah. And it's, <clears throat> and from my point of view, I, I try to put my, my real response in a nutshell now is that I started to work on the subject because I felt like cannabis gives me something, but also I, my research focus was always on consciousness. Then I, I found reading all the literature that I found on it that Cannabis lead can lead temporar- temporarily to all those enhancements of empathic understanding, introspection, pattern recognition, attention patterns, episodic memory retrieval, um, fast associative thinking, creativity, um, the sexual experience, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Insights, spontaneous insights, a really yeah. interesting phenomenon. This was the focus of my first book, High Insights on Marijuana. And... Um, <clears throat> And, and then later I, I got more into the endocannabinoid system, finding that this is in, you know, that we have all those modulations probably because cannabis affects one of the most, if not the most important system for maintaining health in the body and mind, which is the endocannabinoid system. And it led me to my research coming to the hypothesis, which I have been elevated that probably we underestimate how important the endocannabinoid system is in the architecture of all those abilities, pattern recognition, memory, um, episodic memory retrieval, uh, empathic understanding, and that uh, the endocannabinoid system might play a huge role in that. So as as a scientist, working in the field of basic science, which I had to finance through other jobs because of course nobody gave me money for that. I found it hugely rewarding because that took me into the 
real nature of consciousness more, more than anything else that I've done in. And I come from, I had the privilege to work at really, or to, to learn from the best in that field. And I'd say this was a really rewarding, um, not only personal rewarding, because I had those enhancements my, myself and I have some of my insights coming from cannabis use in those books, but also because as a scientist, I'd say this took me to, um, to a route of understanding the consciousness, human consciousness, which was amazing. And I, and I hope that I, that I can transport some of that in my books, but also as a philosopher, you usually don't expect to have a big effect on the world. You usually you'd expect that maybe 200 years after you die, <laughs> you look and says, yep. maybe I should shoot that person, that moral philosopher says, I can't just shoot him because he has green skin. Okay. Now, <laughs> and then I, I um, but then, you know, you write a blog, an expert blog, and people come back for, for, to you because it was translated to five languages. And somebody from New York writes you that he had a traumatic experience and cannabis helped them and, and how your work has, you know, affected him and how he's using it. And you see that actually have an effect on people. And then I worked in the medical industry and helped to educate hundreds of doctors. And I brought in doctors from Canada, Canada to Germany to really show doctors here who were not believing in the whole um studies and etc but they heard it then from doctors who had who had had thousands of uh, medical patients in the cannabis realm who told them how it works and they heard it from colleague to colleague and then suddenly you see okay i started in 2017 when we had 1000 patients in germany now we have i don't know 100 150,000 patients i i'll kind of lost track yeah. It's, it's getting up and all those people all those people have a fundamental effect on their lives. I mean those medical patients, most of them uh, for them cannabis use changed their lives if it's if it's the effect on their pain or whatever. So so it's usually rewarding to work in that field, but you always have to confront people who tell you, um you're still on that you know oh are you not in an unhealthy relationship and uh why are you doing that you could build a house with you know selling tires or cars <laughs> or <guns>. yes. <laughs> yeah yeah so, so um yeah so I, I thought that was an interesting conversation yesterday yeah, it, it reminds me of the inner dialogue sometimes of the old ideas that come up to you that you know no longer work. And so how do you deal with that? Like, okay, you have this thought that comes up, mm, yes, and yes, but that doesn't work for these 10 reasons, you know, and it just seems like so outside is so inside. And sometimes you will be, you will bump up against the people that are like, listen, don't you see where you're like, don't you see this? You're like, yeah, of course I see that. And I'm still doing it. Like, that's yeah. how much I believe in it. Like, and people yeah. are like, you're out of your mind. What, what's wrong with you? You know, it's, but I, when I look back at some of the people that I admire the most, whether it's, you know, you, you wrote about um, Armstrong, and Benjamin and all the, and, and there's so many great things in the books that you wrote about people who, Carl Sagan, you know, Grinspoon, all these people that like, that believed in something 
in this relationship, regardless of what everyone around them said. And some people had the whole world, the weight of the world on them, and they still move forward and it still helped them. And sometimes it helped them through the most difficult times. If, if you find something in your life that is a real ally like that, it's, it's hard to explain it to people who have never had that relationship. I think that's what a lot of people aren't getting, whether it's the psychiatrist or if you look at psychedelics today, there's a lot of people who are trying to help people with psychedelics have never taken a psychedelic so that they can read the literature, but they don't thoroughly understand the experience. Yeah. Um, true that. And I believe it's, it's important. Um, I, I talked about the evolutionary perspective before mm -hmm. that all animals are using psychoactive substances. And then to tell people you are talking to, to make them understand, because they're trying to use the drug, especially in, in, in the German language, a drug in English, you have still drug store mm. and terminology right. being used in a bit more innocent way. In Germany, a drug is always like a pharmaceutical substance or, or an illegal drug. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, in, in Germany, even journalists from you know all, all, all places would use alcohol and drugs. Alcohol, for instance, in Germany is not a drug. It's not, it's not That's a drug. That's so crazy. Same in the US. They have drugs and alcohol. Alcohol yeah. is a drug. Like, what, what are you guys yeah. talking about? Why do they separate that? One of the hardest drugs. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so I, I remember, I'm not sure if I told that anecdote before. Me, uh, I was standing and talking to that one guy, and and I talked, and he asked me what are you doing, and I told him about my books, etc. And he's like, Well, I, I can't say much about it because I've, ne I've mm. never used a drug. And he was standing there, and, and I'm not kidding you, and I'm not exaggerating anything. He, he, he was standing there. He had an espresso with sugar in front of him. It was in the evening. It was party with a lot of sugar. And in his, in his hand was a glass, who was, I think, a vodka, vodka Red Bull and a cigarette. <laughs> That's hilarious. And it was like... I looked at him, like I, I was really, I looked at him and I was like. <laughs> Is there a camera around here, right? Filming me? <laughs> really? You've never used a drug? And he's like, no, I've, I've never used a drug. And I'm like, okay, uh, <laughs> let me take you slowly through it. There's caffeine in your coffee and there are like a dozen other substances that, you know, could be called a drug, but let's keep that, you know, out of, out of the equation. Then there's sugar, which mm -hmm. is technically a drug, an addictive drug right. in your coffee. You're holding a glass of Red Bull um, you know, <laughs> with vodka, alcohol. It's a really strong drug. Red Bull, another drug, you know, another drug. Um, and in, in your cigarette, I'd say, conservatively speaking, sorry for that, That's there right. are probably like 60 substances uh, which are addictive and <laughs> mind-altering and etc. So, um, you sure? Never, <laughs> never had it. And he's like, what? What you mean? <laughs> and, um, and I think this is really important. We need to, we need to make people aware that even if they have never taken a drug, right? We have taken a drug. They're drug users. Right. And I, I, yeah. I, I keep calling people. Drug consumers with a long history of drug, with drug consumption. Uh, and they always go like, what? <laughs> like, what, what are yeah. you calling me? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. 
you're, you're a drug user with a long history of drug drug yeah. use. Because if you don't, if you belong to one percent of the population or less than one percent, then maybe not. But unless you're a weird or unless you're a really outstanding person, like some some um, uh, case that you know is really rare to find, you've, you're using sugar, you're using ca caffeine or alcohol or cigarettes or whatever kind of substance, you know. And um, we need to make people aware again that they have altered mental states, bodily yeah. states. They are. Their influence, and that's what we all do. We influence our moods and our wakefulness states, and our sleep, and our our we we use food and yep. drugs to modulate mental states and modulate bodily states. That's what humans do, and that's what animals do. Koala koalas know how to eat certain leaves of. Uh, of a tree, I don't know, eucalyptus or something. I yeah, think it is. I think so. They know how to use certain leaves. I think I'm not sure if it's the older leaves. I don't remember exactly. To to downregulate their temperature. To if it's hot, and if it's too cold, they're using the younger leaves or other leaves. Mm. They know exactly how to do it to get their body warmer. So you know, we should. I think we should at least. Yeah at least be as intelligent as koalas about our music. Yeah. I'm, I'm really sorry. I need to turn No worries. No worries, man. I think that's a good spot to leave it, man. I I, uh, I love talking to you, Sebastian. I love where our conversations go. And I love the fact that yeah. every one of our sessions have gotten to be a little bit more intimate and a little bit more, you know, just they're just wonderful, man. And I really appreciate your time. But before I let you go, man, what maybe you can give people I like the, the, the amount space. of space. Yeah. Before yeah, I let sorry. you go, man, can you can you give people a taste of the books that you've written? Maybe if you have a few right there, maybe you can show them up so people that are watching can see yeah, it. Yeah, and I would love for people that are listening to get to hear the title so they can go out and buy them. The books yeah. you've written have been awesome, man. And I, I I want people that are listening to this. Or people that are looking for speakers to really understand the the brilliance and the pedigree that you have, man. Oh my! Now you set the bar too high. <laughs> only... That's how I do it. <laughs> I can only limbo below that, but I'm trying. <laughs> okay. Um, quick one through. Um, this was the first book that um, I published: High Insights on Cannabis, and it's kind of like a the foundational work for, for things that I've done later. <clears throat> um, and it, it, it focused on, that was the first thing, phenomenon that I was interested in, insights during a cannabis high, like the aha effect where you're like, whoa, I suddenly have an insight. And I looked into the whole insight psychology, but, but looking at that effect, I found that I need to look at all the other cognitive effects a cannabis high has as like yeah. on pattern recognition and um, on your attention and how the combination of all those um, cognitive effects com combine to under certain circumstances lead to insights. So that's not available anymore. Um, it's out of print, and then I, I kind, of, I almost got a really big. Um, that was in 2010. I published that, 
And um, then I got a, a, a literary agent in the States who wanted to really put that out. And he, at some point he said, oh no, but you're writing also about your own experience, you're prejudiced. <laughs> and it kind of never really hit the market. Then I thought, okay, I need to do something different so that um, I, I can actually uh, reach a broader audience. And I wrote high, the positive potential of marijuana, which could have been also the positive mind altering potential of marijuana, because this mm -hmm. is not about uh, medicine or medical uses, but it's really also focusing on, again, like slowly here, uh, just on um, how cannabis can alter mental states, but it's, it's essays and it also has an essay on prohibition made a huge in 2013, 13 made a huge splash in the media here in Germany. And, uh, and I thought a lot about how do I write this book and I put it in shorter essays. It's much easier to read and it contains a, a series of photos that I've taken here, for instance, of a cannabis seed. Oh yeah. And then on a, uh, another cannabis seed, where I wanted to show people also how different the genetics are, you know, even on the visual level, it's easy to see that, um, that there are different varieties. And so the, the, the photography helped me a lot to, um, to explain many things about, yeah. about cannabis that helped my, um, my message, get out my message. So, and also the photography helped me to get in the media and because if you look at the media also the imagery is always the same about cannabis you know yeah. like people smoking a joint and and very stereotypical people of you know etc so i wanted uh, that was important for me also to put out different imagery and imagery that's much more enlightening and giving people a different sense of what, what the whole thing is about then um i published the art of the high um uh, your guide to using cannabis for an outstanding life. Um, no, that's not true. I'm sorry. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I, that came out before 2015. What Hashes did to Walter Benjamin, I talked about that book before. It's, it's also about it's like 20, 20 more um, essays on, on cannabis, uh, including an essay on Carl Sagan and uh, and about uh, John Lennon and the uh, body image perception, for instance, and but also about how cannabis probably affected society through luminaries like yep. Benjamin. Yep. Um, <clears throat> then came this one, The Art of the High in uh, 2021, uh, which I published also in German and English. And it's, it's a guide to using cannabis for an outstanding life. So it's a very short and... Um, uh, easy reading um, that introduces readers, beginners, but also experienced cannabis users to, um, it's like a really how-to guide, how to use cannabis for various mind enhancements, including some uh, something about dosing and something about choosing varieties and sativa indica, and if that still makes sense. And, yep. And those information you need, information you need to to make a decision on how to use cannabis, but it's also again it's not about medical uses; it's really about enhancement uses. And the last uh, book I published in uh, last year uh, for Hilarious Press or with Hilarious Press is "Elevated Cannabis as a Tool for Mind Enhancement," which is based 
on my German book High <clears throat> on this one, but it's a much more in-depth exploration. It's still written in a popular scientist uh, style, um, popular science style. So it's, it's I think, uh, good to read, but it's much more detailed about the cannabis enhancements. It also um, has an article on the cannabis prohibition. But um, I think that's the one to read now if you want to get a good overview of uh, it doesn't contain everything uh, in my research, but it's it's a good overview of my work, I think, and yeah. an in-depth exploration of uh, and my and also uh, new stuff, you know, new essays, three new essays on uh, cannabis and, and addiction and the endocannabinoid system, the, the hypothesis that I put out on the endocannabinoid system being probably one of the most important systems that um, underlie um, very the most complex and that that's I think I leave you all with that thought. I find it also we come back to artificial intelligence now. I find it interesting that we are seeing enhancements of the most complicated core human abilities and highest developed core human abilities during a high creativity and most defining human abilities, mental abilities, creativity, introspection, empathy, our, and our ability to, to come up with great insights. Yeah. That makes me think. So, and, and the, the endocannabinoid system might be underlying all those most complex human abilities and might be an important factor in, in sustaining those um, abilities. So um, yeah, so that's elevated. And again, as a society, we've managed, <laughs> we have suppressed, prohibited this plan for 100 years or so. So that may give us something to think about too. Yeah, isn't it interesting that over that same period of time, we've have a lack in creativity, a lack of introspection, a lack of empathy. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind it of fit right on top of each other, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you have a beautiful week. I hope that you realize no matter what's going on out in the world, you can become a better version of yourself. I hope you understand your relationships and I hope you choose to rise above the riffraff and find a way to make your life beautiful. And you can do it. It's Maybe it's as easy as getting up five minutes earlier or going for a walk or telling someone you love them. I hope you choose to do all of those things. That's all we got. Go down to the show notes. Check out Sebastian. His his website will be down there. Wait, where can people find you, Sebastian? You still got the same. I know you got a website. Can you put that out there for people? Yeah, it's it's uh, sebastianmarincolo.de. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm, I'm working on, on my blog currently. I'm going to put it up again soon, um, but it's uh, it contains a lot of information on my books and you get all the links to to my work there and, and all the information, yeah. And I know a few people have been reaching, they've been hitting me up looking for you. Are you still, are you, um, still consulting and going out? I, I don't know. I think you were coming to Canada or the U.S. I don't know if you've came or you're gone or is that, if someone wanted you to come and speak at an event, is that something they could do by reaching out to you or are you? Yeah, yeah, definitely reach out to me. And I'm, 
I um, I'm I'm happy to to talk about. Also, right. I'm working on workshops uh, uh, based on the art of the high, and I think um, what's probably really interesting to people is, of course, the whole general overview of the enhancement uses of cannabis. Yeah to come to a better understanding also for people who are working with addiction, yes. but also from, from the psychedelic field to understand why people are using it, how they are using it, what's the science, what do we know about the science behind it? But I'm also specialized on, you know, a part of that is to how to use cannabis for creativity. And I think yeah. um, it's, it's a very complicated matter, um, but it's, there are some easy ways to help people if you're a musician, if you're a writer or so, to come to a really better and incredibly productive way to work with cannabis as a mind enhancement tool for creativity. And so if uh, I'm working on um, to prepare workshops for that too. So if you're interested, please just reach out to me and we'll see. Yeah, I know um, uh, Psychedelic Science 2025 is coming up. If, and my friend Ben is watching. You should get Sebastian over there to be giving presentations, man. I, th I think that uh, I think there's so much that people could benefit from your work, you know, and you're always seem to be five steps ahead, man. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And I hope everybody uh, goes down to the show notes, checks out Sebastian. That's all we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you have a beautiful day. Hello. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.